Hey, before we get into today's episode, I have a favor to ask, actually. So we are now over a year in with Scratch. We've recorded about 50 episodes, and by the time you're listening to this, potentially more. It's been amazing, and I've really appreciated the feedback and support from you all. But I really want to try with this second year to get Scratch in front of a wider audience. And so I'm asking you, if you've been listening for a while, or if you're new, if you find this content valuable, if you're supporting what we're trying to do, I would really appreciate it if you could just take a second, press pause on this episode, either leave a review or share this episode and scratch with someone else who you think would find it valuable. It would mean a ton to me and to us as we're really trying to build the audience and the rival brand and get this content in front of more people that we think and that you think can help. Thank you so much for the continued support. Now on to the episode. Honestly, I think if you haven't gone and checked out the whole Spotify scale agile squad model, right? Go, go, go check it out. That's like, is, is there, certainly if you're in some incumbent or large organization, right? It, it can be, I think, game changing if you, if you actually properly go there, but you've got to properly go there. It's not a, it's not just putting some uh, lipstick on, on, on stuff. It's, um, but yeah, go, go check that out. If you've not checked it out already, it's, it's, um, I think, a, a paradigm shift in how people think about organizational models. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is Richard Davies. He is the CEO at Alica, which is a challenger SME lender here in the UK. They actually just hit the milestone of a billion pounds lent out only two years after its launch. Um, Richard Richard has a really interesting background. I think a lot of you in financial services, particularly here in the UK, would have heard of him already. He was the CEO of banking at Revolut and then the non-executive director. He also spent some time at TSB Bank and the global head uh, of digital and propositions at HSBC, as well as the COO of their UK business. Um, and before that, he was at Oak North and a big player as the CEO in helping that business become a unicorn early on. So it's really interesting, you know, not a CMO, but I wanted to have him on the show because I think his experience of having been in now three unicorns, because he's a non-exec at uh, World Remit as well, but also big incumbents would be really interesting to hear, you know, what are the, what are the consistencies, what are the red threads, what are the contrasting differences between how incumbents and challengers approach growth. And that's exactly what we got into. So he talks a, a bit about his background and being at Revolut, being at Oak North, being at HSBC, but also how he's taking those learnings and applying them to how he and the team are growing Alica. So I think you're really going to be um, interested in this, particularly those of you that kind of nerd out on the marketing work design. How do you structure teams uh, as a business is growing? How in a more product led business, how does marketing and where does marketing play a role? I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Richard Davies. Hey everyone, my guest today is Richard Davies, CEO of Alica Bank. Richard, do you just go by Alica or do you go by Alica Bank typically? I think Alica, hey, we're sort of on the shirt, right? So uh, yeah, um, drop the bank. It's funny, was that a, because um, we're doing some work now building a challenger bank 
And the stage that we're at in developing the brand strategy and the go-to-market strategy is actually on the name. And that's one of the conversations is like, do you include bank? Do you not include bank? But obviously that was there before you got there, right? Yeah. And listen, I think to be honest, it's contextual. So I'd say if you're kind of in the market for talent, I think going single name works better than putting the bank on. If you're targeting end consumer, the, the bank thing does convey quite a bit of trust. Um, so I think it's contextual as to when, when we use it, when we don't. Yeah. Um, I'm just debating whether to go completely off script so early, but I'm going to do it because you brought it up and it sparked a question in my mind, you know, talent. Uh, so you coming in and actually, why don't we start with, if you can kind of give 30 to 60 seconds of context on your background, uh, I will have done kind of a quick introduction for people that I'll record after the chat. So they will have heard a little bit, but you know, um, what brought you to Alica, you know, when you started, and then I think it'd be great. I'm sure. And knowing a bit, having seen some of the content that you've put out, I'm sure talent is a huge priority for you. So I'd love to, maybe we can just start with that. Like, how does that fit into your kind of mind map and uh, priorities as CEO for marketing and otherwise? Yeah. So I, I joined Alica in August of 2020, came here from Revolut, where I was the group COO. And before that, I've worked both in major banks like HSBC, but also was involved in setting up uh, Oak North, uh, which is um, 2014, 2015 established and uh, one of the most successful sort of new banks in the UK, valued about $5 billion last summer. Um, so yeah, I kind of done a bunch of both fintech and major banking over the career. And I guess I was coming into Alica with midst of the pandemic, Alica's first loan went out uh, March 2020, so kind of born into the pandemic. And I had this real view that, um, I mean, I love SME finance, like uh, it's sort of for some reason a passion of mine. And just with the, the crisis going on with the pandemic, there was this massive need to help disrupt and transform the market where the sort of high street incumbent banks that I'd, I'd worked at in the past, you could see them retreating. And it's like a third of the economy. And someone's got to step up and really uh, help that space. So that's kind of how I came to be here. Um, I mean, talent. So I, I think talent is is like everything, really. Um, I think every company needs to think about what is the type of talent they need. So, so Revolut was um, like massively long on people that were really high IQ, uh, really data-driven, uh, really sort of technical mindset, um, which given they were looking to be as close to fully automated on everything as possible. I think if if Nick Stronsky could uh, have no humans anywhere other than engineering, he would. Um, it was kind of like the, the profile they were looking for. I, I think kind of when I look at Alica, we're looking for something probably a little more balanced. We, we certainly really love the, the product tech uh, angle, but we are trying to blend the human relationship with that that tech angle um and because uh, that's kind of what the end customer wants and needs if you're a business owner with 50 staff you 
you're kind of not just after an app only experience. Um, so I, I think actually blending that human and technology from a sort of talent and culture point of view is, is probably actually harder uh, than going pure play on one dimension or the other. Um, so yeah, we're trying to, I guess, get quite a bit of diversity when it comes to talent. Um, but there's probably some commonality about some of the features you want from people, like the openness, collaborative, definitely, um, passion for the customer, definitely, um, and probably a sort of energy and uh, degree of creativity you, you want to see, whether they're going to be an engineer or whether they're going to be um, a relationship manager for a customer. And And how do you think about brand you know what sparked this question for me in this tangent was you saying well alica one word is going to be more appealing to talent so that's thinking about brands even if it's from an employer brand standpoint and not a customer brand standpoint and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about kind of the brand in terms of go to market and driving growth of the business but on the talent side is that like how much kind of mind share does that take up for you as ceo if and and you have a cmo at, at alica so uh, we have a uh, head of marketing, a lady called Chloe Fenton, who's great. Um, and she reports to our chief product and strategy officer, a guy called Corinne Ford, who's got quite a sort of growth stroke marketing bent himself. Um, so in terms of like how much do I think about talent? Uh, quite a lot, I think it's fair to say. I mean, for when I came in, right, the, the, the sort of probably the one of the number one things I was trying to do was make a reposition us where i guess classically you go get a bank license you are seen as a bank um and, and we are a bank right there's lots of good things to go with that but i think from a talent attraction point of view people often think of banks as kind of slightly old school um so i wanted to make sure we were as much fintech as we were bank um from a talent point of view particularly when you're looking at uh yeah could be growth marketing could be product could be front or back-end engineering, could be data roles. Um, that's been a pretty hot market last year or two. And yeah, uh, you don't want to come across like you're some old school bank, um, which we're not. So yeah, I, I sort of personally spent quite a bit of time, as did uh, Conrad, sort of, um, I, I guess, looking to try and personally move that brand image. Uh, a lot of sort of conferences, uh, podcasts, etc., to try and make sure that there was that view that um, we are doing something interesting, new, with a lot of product and tech focus behind it. Um, so and I think it's, it's broadly worked. I mean, we've gone from just under 100 people when I, I joined to about 300 right now uh, and have, I mean, upscaled the sort of the product and engineering functions from maybe 20 to 120. Um, so there's been some like, big, big growth in these areas in, in quite competitive markets. Uh, and same as the marketing, I mean, we, we had, um, I don't remember saying one person when I joined, <laughs> we're now at six or seven. So we've, we've kind of scaled up everything uh, a fair bit over the, the last two years. That's great. So yeah, sorry to take us off on a, on a, you know, a side, side conversation to kick it off, but let's go back to the beginning, even though we're warmed up, let's do the icebreaker question. So can you tell us about a brand that you are passionate about, very interested in right now, and it obviously can't be your own? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, actually, I wish in my segment there was a really great brand that I, I could really look up to and think, wow, you guys have just killed it. Uh, but I actually think the segment's quite hard, and I, I find it hard to find those brands. You've got to often go outside that for the 
what you like. And I mean, I guess I, 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 not, I think this one divides people, but I'm going to go Apple because I, when I was at HSBC, I was sort of, first of all, COO for their UK business, then ran digital globally for their commercial bank. And like people used to joke that HSBC stood for how simple became complex. And I think Apple sort of does the opposite of that. They kind of make the complex simple for the user. Uh, and some people want to customize it way more. And like, yeah, Android's better for that. But there's something about just that focus on design that makes the complex simple that I love because actually that is kind of what we're trying to do with Alica, right? It's a fairly complex segment uh, where our, our customers don't have the resources of a enterprise corporate company, um, but still navigating all the complexity of, of that world. So how, how do we make that simple? Uh, I think is kind of a, a great way to think about things in, in product design, process design, what you say to customers in marketing, communications, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd probably go Apple if, if I have to pick. I'm, I'm not gonna divide people by saying that. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I think there's you know a lot of people that throw out Apple talking about just kind of the appeal of the brand and the marketing they've done, et cetera. But I really like the point about simplicity because one of the things I always think about is simplicity and how closely it correlates to scale. Meaning the more you wanna scale something, the simpler it needs to be whether it's the code, whether it's the design, whether it's the marketing, uh, culture, you know, and how you think about values and, and what's important internally. So I think that drive for simplicity is something that a lot of CMOs, CEOs, and great organizations do. And, and clearly, you know, Steve Jobs was, uh, was adamant about that in a lot of what he did and the culture that he built at Apple. Okay, great. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. Let's get into the meat of the conversation. Um, which I'm really excited about. So I think where I want to start is, you know, your background is so interesting, particularly for the focus of this podcast, because a lot of what we're doing is trying to understand the differences between incumbents and challengers. And what is it that drives the growth of these challenger brands? How are they able to grow you know, obviously there's exceptions in every category, but for the most part, a lot of these challengers are able to grow much quicker than incumbents. And so a lot of that obviously has to do with delivering new, unique, differentiated value to the customer and the market through great product. And one of the things that we say is the best marketing is a great product. Um, but a lot of it also comes from the brand that they build and how they think about growth more holistically. So in your experience, having been involved in, you know, early-ish stage startups and now three unicorns, including your non-exec role at World Remit, um, but also being at HSBC and some of the bigger incumbents, I'd just be curious, very broad question, but what are the biggest differences that you've seen between how challengers and how incumbents approach growth? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. I think the large companies I've worked at, I think you get this culture of um, protect the status quo and risk aversion that can really kill new initiatives, growth, etc. And it's not deliberate, but it's just almost how you get kind of, particularly in a financial services company, it's regulated. You get like this um, 
immune system that grows up within the organization that sort of tries to kill things that look like they might be interesting or or fast growing um and i guess that's what a a true challenger brand thrives on on growth and creativity i think the interesting question is how do you how you do that in a regulated environment um because it's it's way harder when you are regulated than when you're not because yeah you, you kind of unleash creativity to the full you break a bunch of stuff and you get a whole bunch of shit with the regulators, uh, which is not good. So, like, um, there's an interesting kind of balance, right? Which I, I find like, that's why I, I really like fintech and financial services because you've, I think it's kind of the most one of the most interesting problem spaces to work with. You've got that sort of, not just how do you drive innovation and growth, but also how do you keep in the right sort of space um, with the regulation and risk. And I, I think it can be a hard balance, right? But yeah, if you if you kill creativity, you kill. Um, the ability to take some measured risk, you, you don't tr- deliver growth. Um, and I think that's that's the sad thing in most big organizations is they, they really struggle to create that, that culture that can allow for that, um, that space for the creativity and growth. And so knowing that, having seen it firsthand, how did you think about when you first came into the CEO role at Alica, um, having a business that had some scale already, you know, a hundred people, but obviously was still moldable by you. There wasn't, or I'm assuming there wasn't also knowing it was still a relatively young business, that kind of bureaucracy and inertia and aversion of risk internally, or correct me if I'm wrong, but how did you kind of think about intentionally creating that or harnessing it if it was already there and maintaining it as the business has scaled to 300 and in my experience, having been in a couple businesses that have done that jump, you know, 300 is a very different company than 100. And and I think 500, and I'm sure you're already starting to think about this, is a completely different tipping point in terms of how people relate to each other, how they relate to their job, how they relate to kind of like the company. Like it's a it's a it's a big business at that point. So how if you know kind of what the answer is of what you need to do to drive that innovation and creativity. How are you thinking about making sure that happens at Alica as CEO? So I wouldn't pretend to have all the answer for sure. I think, I mean, the way I, I'm a massive fan of the, I think it was originally kind of um, popularized from a white paper by Spotify, but the kind of um, squad model. So you align cross-functional teams to, internal or external customer facing services and um, seek to, uh, I guess, give empowerment to those squads to push on with stuff so that you, through that, you seek to scale um, what might work at a smaller scale to a larger scale by trying to keep that degree of autonomy at a sort of squad level. Um, so I mean, we've gone from like five squads a year ago to 12 squads now, uh, and it's, it's, it's not easy, it's not perfect, um, but I'm a massive fan of that. It's probably the, the single biggest way you solve for this um, this question. And I, I think someone at Revolut actually uh, just did this on a phenomenal scale. It was it was eye-opening. I mean, when I was there, they must have had 55, 60 squads operating in parallel, um, and I think very, very few companies manage to achieve that level of parallel scale with still very high speed. I mean, shipping in 35 countries across maybe 
20 to 30 different product verticals. I mean, you're probably talking Amazon, not many others that can kind of get to that degree of um, cross-country, cross-vertical speed of shipping. Uh, so yeah, big, big fan of that as kind of a organizational principle, ways of working principle uh, as part of the solution. Um, I think beyond that, you've got to put a lot of focus on what cultural values you want to see and uh, yeah, how you hire for that, how you put that into performance management and so on, because I think behaviors scale. Um, so yeah, uh, but I wouldn't say I've got the, the perfect answer and I, I think it's one that probably we need to have a go around again as we go forwards as to how do you get that sort of almost like front to back alignment around what ultimately you want to achieve because uh, to a degree who you hire how they behave what they do is your customer proposition and you've got to have that resonance from target market proposition right through what your your kind of people you hire and how they work day to day um, happens and I, I think there's something really interesting to to do more on there for us next year actually i don't think we've fully cracked it but as i say if there's one single thing it'd be that kind of um that way of organizing the, the kind of squad model I'm a, I'm a massive fan of trying to trying to get more autonomy down the organization have you studied the um netflix i think it's less of a model and more kind of like principles so the culture deck that they put out probably well well more than 10 years ago now and then reed hastings i think came out with the book a couple of years ago yeah so it's less you know less on the kind of product engineering and how you form those squads but i would imagine a lot of the principles are the same i will um will include the spotify white paper in the show notes but for people who aren't familiar with it maybe you could give a quick overview of what it is and uh, I don't believe marketing is included as part of that, right? So I'd be curious how marketing fits in, if that's kind of the organizing principle and structure. How do you think about marketing in or around that? Yeah, yeah. And actually, interesting question we've been playing around with ourselves. Um, so, I mean, basically, yeah, it was about 2012, the paper came out, and it, it really described how Spotify had set up these, uh, sort of the unit of organization vertically was a squad, the squad was aligned to a particular service, mostly external customer facing, but it could also be a, a squad that enables other squads like IE internal customers. And I give an example, I think you look at the Spotify app and it's got many features like radio or search or whatever, and each of those is a squad. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so each person's, each squad's got its own remit, its own Little, little business there to maximize. Uh, and that squad's given KPIs or OKRs or whatever framework you want to use to have some goals as to what they are trying to maximize, but then is given degrees of freedom to work out how best to deliver a combination of things that, that maximizes those goals. Uh, and the, the, it's cross-functional, so it's like whatever the skills are needed in that area to, to deliver likely product owner, likely designer, likely front and back end, but it does depend on the squad. Um, and, then, and then there's a sort of nuance to it, which is having some degree of horizontal, um, what are called chapters, but sort of more functional expertise from a sort of best practice, career development point of view, like I don't know, web or iOS. Um, or design. Uh, so that was kind of the model. And I, I sort of first came across it in, I want to say 2015, 16. 
And it just made so much common sense to me against the kind of bullshit old school way of doing things like you got complete, you, you're aligning vertical functions. They're all quite siloed. They all kind of fight with each other. And then you have a big waterfall program for like 18 months um, where you try and get these people to work together to deliver an outcome. And yeah, it just wasn't great, right? The combination of that organizational model and agile as a way of working just just really passed the common sense test for me. So ever since then, I've been an advocate for it. And I think, to be honest, probably, probably the place I've seen it ever work best is Revely. I think it was quite awe-inspiring actually to see the, the degree of parallel, parallelization of squads uh, and, and the kind of speed of shipping that was creating across so many geos and products. So how does product fit? So how does marketing fit into that? I think is a really interesting question. Um, we'd actually set up a growth squad. Um, we just kind of like disbanded that, um, and I think probably going to think more about aligning uh, whatever you call it, right? Growth marketing, product marketing uh, into sort of product tribes. So a tribe is a collection of squads. Uh, so for us, we have a, a tribe working on lending, a tribe working on our our payments, current account side of things, and there's probably something about attaching the the, the growth marketing resource at that level, um, so that uh, there's that sort of, uh, I guess, marketing input to what the product build looks like, uh, as well as into yeah, I don't know, iteration of application journeys, this sort of stuff. Um, so you're trying to connect that sort of more technical product delivery with the the go to market and the um, and all goes with that. Uh, yeah, we, we did previously have a growth squad that was sort of uh, its own squad, its own right. I, I, I don't know. I'll be interested to see what, what the wider um, world does on this. Uh, I think people often attach the, the product marketing at a squad or tribe level. It's, it's certainly what Revolut did as well. But yeah, what, what's, what, what are you seeing on that? Uh, interesting to chat about, actually. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking of. And I was, you know, I'm thinking of some of the clients that we work with, but also the time at 11FS. Um, you know, it was relatively, it was earlier stage because we were building greenfield propositions. And so I guess it really wasn't in, you know, it's, it's such a different thing because we weren't our own product. We were building other people's products and it was a consulting business model. Um, I think it probably does, you know, design is not marketing right? That it is a part of marketing, but it's also a part of product. And typically the design person in that squad or whoever's owning that role is not going to be solving the job to be done that I think marketing needs to do, which is essentially, of course, there's kind of the go-to-market and the communications and the advertising, which is a lot of what non-marketing people think marketing is. But fundamentally, marketing is about connecting the product to the customer. And so there needs to be someone, you know, having done a lot of these interviews, and I'm sure it gets talked about so much, particularly in the FS industry, um, you know, how do you be more customer centric? To me, of course, you want that flowing throughout the culture and the process of everything that you do. And every business has their own ways of doing that. But fundamentally, I see that as a, as a responsibility of marketing, or at least I should say good marketing functions, good CMOs, good heads of marketing, good marketeers make the businesses they work for more customer centric. So I think it's actually an interesting conversation. I didn't know I was, you know, I didn't know you were going to bring it up. I didn't know I was going to ask the question, but it, it, uh, I'm definitely going to be thinking more about this because how should marketing fit into that squad model? If that's kind of being adopted by a lot of challenger or even incumbent businesses now, I think that's a really interesting 
prompt and potentially something for us to think about and maybe put something out about. I'm sure there's stuff out there already. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to look into that. Yeah. Cause I think, I think I'd say that pretty much every like yeah, startup I know in, in FinTech is, is using this model. And I think yeah, you are seeing a lot more of the incumbents move this way, certainly for their spin-off Greenfield stuff, but, but I think also in the main main core as well. So there is definitely an interesting question out there. And I, and I agree if you're right, the CMO definitely should, has to be a customer champion and um, often does a lot of the sort of, not the not the kind of user design type stuff where you're doing that sort of uh, design research, but the, the kind of wider understanding of the customer, the customer experience, like your metrics on that, typically owned certainly with us is, is sort of owned and driven in the, the marketing department. And there's that massive feedback loop as to, if you want to have top in market customer experience, like, like if you're doing that already, great, but like, where do you improve from there to keep top of the market? If you're not top of the market, what the hell is it you're, you're missing to, to make sure you are top of market? So yeah, I think there's something interesting there. And it's, um, yeah, I think yeah, an interesting question, all design-wise, and don't think we've cracked it right now. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing is, um, much to your point of talking about kind of the traditional incumbent 18-month waterfall processes, I think a lot of businesses treat marketing as the next step after product development when it really should be integrated. You know, ideally, you have someone who's thinking about how the product gets brought to market while the product is being developed as opposed to, or a feature, whatever it might be, as opposed to developing something and then figuring out if or how it can be brought to market. I think that's really interesting as well. Um, and I, and, and actually, and, and, you know, you know, like Jason Bates is a co-founder of 11FS. We spent a lot of time together, um, and him being at Starling and Monzo relatively early on, I, I think that's interesting. Like there was a marketing perspective at the table, even if he wasn't the CMO or however long he was there. But I think both of those businesses, and I think you see it in the brand that they built and the product that they built, they had people that were thinking about how to bring, how to build a brand that people would care about, how to build a community around what they were doing, how to bring the customer into the product development roadmap. They were thinking about those things from the very beginning. Um, yeah, really interesting conversation. So um, we've probably got time for like one more big question. And I think that I want that to be, let's talk about the SMB uh, market. So, you know, you were saying, I can't remember if it was after we press record or before we press record, but, you know, you're clearly passionate about this. Um, it was during we press records, the third of the economy. Um, this clearly factored into you choosing to go to Alica and take this opportunity. When it comes to bringing the Alica proposition to market, driving the growth of the business, how do you think about the SMB segment and the opportunities or challenges of growing a business in that space? So I think the first point is just breaking down the, the market a bit. So uh, I, I guess in particular, I make quite a difference between what people often call a micro business. So it's one person or maybe two or three people, but it, it's, it's very much an individual or a couple of individuals um, versus what we call a, an established business. So they've got 10, 30, 100 staff. Uh, and I think they look quite different because one is is really about me as an individual and how do you you help me? Because uh, I've got all the, all the hassle of doing everything because it's just me. 
and then you've got the established business where they've actually got a bunch of staff. Um, so it's not like they're doing everything themselves personally anymore, but they've got nothing like the resources of a large company. And yet they've got quite a lot of the complexity of that large company because um, they are employing staff and they've got payroll and they've got to do benef- uh, pensions and they've got to do other benefits. And then on the financial side, they've typically got a legal entity. They might have other subsidiaries when they borrow, it's secured. Anyways, there's m- so much complexity, right? And yet they haven't got like a 20-person finance department that the enterprise company has. Um, so we're, we're really focused on that established business and at 10 to 250 staff is how we define that. Um, we think the micro business space is it's super interesting as well, but it's already had a lot of focus in the UK with Starling, with Tide, with uh, Monzo. A whole bunch of people have done micro business banking propositions centered around that individual and doing a good job, right? So we're we're exclusively focused on the, the piece above that, the, the established business segment. It's about a third of GDP, so that's pretty important. And yet, kind of, no one's done it right apart from traditional banks. So we find that that really interesting as a space because uh, it basically looks like the last big unaddressed opportunity for fintech in the the UK banking market. Um, so I guess then you kind of ask the question: Well, why is it is it unaddressed? And I think. Um, you've got this fact that you have to have a bank license because these are companies that are borrowing quite material amounts of money. So when they borrow from us, they borrow typically about half a million pounds. Um, So they need quite a good interest rate on that. If you haven't got the bank license, you can't actually provide a a low interest rate. You get stuck uh, providing a much higher interest rate. So you've got to have a bank license, which actually then cuts off 90% of FinTech who don't. and then there's also this, this this dimension of understanding the customer deeply um, and how do you solve that complexity for both them and you. Um, so uh, the high street banks are kind of retreating from this space because they used to solve this complexity by having people in branches, but that's kind of not working for them anymore. Um, so really what we're trying to do is build our own proprietary technology that helps us solve this complexity within people that can speak to the client um, to ensure it's put across in a easy to understand manner. Um, and, and we sort of also build relationship and hopefully get referral over time uh, into the rest of the market. So yeah, a lot of our, the problem we're trying to solve, we think is the segment is inherently complicated and complex for both banks to serve and customers to work in. How do you make that complexity simple by technology? And how do you combine that with um, great people that have great relationship with the, the end customer base? Great. And um, I know one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, how do you, you're not going for the mass market, but you're also not going for kind of like the tippy top enterprise where it's more of a sales approach because you know exactly who you're trying to reach. So when you think about marketing or when you're meeting with your head of marketing on the marketing strategy and investment, how do you think about trying to find that balance between needing to go to a broader audience, but trying to be as efficient as possible with where you invest and how you get the brand in front of your potential customers? I think this was like one of the, the really hard questions for this segment. 
Uh, so if we, if we define it as roughly 10 staff to 250 staff, there might be 400,000 businesses in the UK that look like that, which is quite a lot. It's not a small number. So if you're talking enterprise, you might be talking a few thousand at most. Um, so we're not in that kind of, as I say, tippy-toppy, kind of really small sort of defined market. Um, but equally, it's not. These are not consumers. There's not 60 million out there. Um, and so you're in that kind of how do you reach the business owner, the person, because it is still a person at the end of it, um, in your target segment uh, and build a brand with them in particular. Because um, you, you can clearly go and, and do targeted sort of LinkedIn or other type communications to that, that market, but um, you need some brand build as well uh, alongside that. And uh, I, I guess I mean, if we go and do some TV campaign, that's going to be pretty inefficient given most people that's touching and not um, not the target market. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we, again, I don't think we've cracked it. And it's why I wish there was sort of a uh, amazing brand I could quote in this space that I could um, copy, <laughs> having done it in the past, right, in whatever walk of life. But uh, I think often people have done this space as sort of a, a sort of bit of a adjunct to having done another space. And, and certainly when I was at, say, HBC, they spent huge amounts of money on all sorts of things. I mean, for example, you look at the all the air bridges at most airports, most places, and there's HSBC on those. And um, that has quite a big collateral benefit into the sort of target market I'm talking about because, yeah, business owners travel and they see HSBC. But they're doing it because they're targeting consumer uh, or actually corporate as well, right? It, it's really they're aimed at those segments, but gets a, a side benefit of this segment. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting space. I mean, we've done a lot of um, very targeted space at what you might call influencers, but it's sort of the, the people that are intermediaries in this market, the people are often where that end business owner will go if they're uncertain about how they raise finance, uh, which, yeah, there's commercial finance brokers, there's also accountants, and I think building the brand there can be quite powerful in terms of giving you leverage to the end SME market. Um, and I'm also really, really interested in a theme of how you build your own, rather than just intermediary, but also your own direct brand. And I, I think personally, there is a role for that in terms of some degree of um, targeted, uh, like for example, we sponsored sponsored a few sports events where we know there's quite a high propensity for business owners to watch those. Um, but we're doing it pretty, <laughs> we're sort of like the, the people I call if, um, if the, the main consumer guys have, have pulled out. <laughs> so you're trying to get good value on that stuff, um, which does help, right? And you do see people then, I mean, like we did one of the uh, Ashes cricket tests in Australia last year and like just loads of people were suddenly texting us or pinging us on a LinkedIn account going, whoa, <laughs> amazing Sialica, like on the pitch at the Ashes. Um, but I, I think there's also, I think the most powerful thing if we can get it really working is actually in the, the business communities which tend to be either regional or industry because yeah if you're a 50 person business owner you've got suppliers and customers that are also that in your sector or your geo and i think that's one we we really will want to work on going forwards is how do we how do we build that real brand and therefore word of mouth in, in those particular communities and 
I think some of that can only be done via people, actually. Um, there's something about sort of having the right people out there and getting into those communities with the right the right attitude as well as the right um, products that starts to build that. Like everyone else in this market is old school. Have you tried Alica, basically? Yeah. Well, I think totally. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that there's still opportunity in doing something like that is because it's not scalable with technology. There's no programmatic buy for all those intermediaries or influencers or whatever it is. And a lot of people aren't willing to invest in the humans um, to be able to do it. So I, th I think that's really interesting. Hopefully you are building the brand that people will be able to point to as the example in this space if there's not one there already. So uh, Richard, we're out of time. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. I think this was really interesting to get your perspective. So last question before I let you go, what's the one thing that people should do differently after listening to this episode? Oh God. Um, honestly, I think if you haven't gone and checked out the whole spotify scaled agile squad model right go 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 check it out that's like is, is there, certainly if you're in some in, incumbent or large organization right it, it can be i think game changing if you if you actually properly go there but you've got to properly go there it's not a it's not just putting some uh, lipstick on, on 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 stuff it's um but yeah go, go check that out if you've not checked it out already it's it's um i think a, a paradigm shift in how people think about organizational models great stuff all right, so we will definitely include a link to that Spotify paper in the show notes, and maybe I'm definitely going to go reread re up on it again. So maybe if I find some other interesting articles talking about it, particularly from a marketing perspective, I will send them to you and include them in the show notes as well. But Richard, thanks so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.